guy, they came in, and uh, they needed some marital counseling. And so, you know, he's trying to unpack the story a little bit, what's going on, background, history, those kinds of things. And, and uh, they had three young boys and things were going on. And a beautiful couple, I felt, and, and they had a heart for God, seemingly, and those kinds of things. But I could just tell the tension and stress in their home. And it's like, are you going to hang in there or are you not going to hang in there? Well, it, it, they were wobbling, man. They were wobbling. And I, I do this sometimes when I'm sharing in marriage counseling. So if you're coming to me, I'll probably maybe share it with you, if you, especially if you've got kids. I said, could I speak to you on behalf of your young little boys from them being 18, 21, 25 years old? Could we just bring them in here at that age? They're all grown up. And have them seated in these chairs and they could speak to you. What do you think those young boys would say to you, mom and dad, concerning your broken marriage right now? What do you think they'd say? They would say what? Mom, dad, work it out. Hang in there. Keep the healthy home. We need it. It's important for upbringing. You see, your mission may be just providing the best kind of marriage and family to be an incubator, a lover of the children that are growing up. You have a mission from God, and that mission will motivate you, but that mission matters to someone else. And if you fail in that mission, they will be impacted by it. You know, just John and Kimberly up here sharing, they have a a mission, a passion to help people with with brokenness in their home concerning finances. And they know that this burden is something that they need to share and sort of help facilitate a class that could maybe change your life forever and your home. It matters. They feel that. What's your burden? What's your passion that you do? Nehemiah, he got the burden. Cupbearer the king in Persia, 444 B.C. He felt he needed to go back to his homeland from his ancestors, Jerusalem, and help rebuild the wall because it was broken down. He got the favor of the king. He got the resources. He was sent 800 miles away. He got to Jerusalem. He gathered a few around him to share his plan in private. Then he courageously cast vision for how to rebuild this wall and reestablish the heart and soul of Judah. And then he put the people to work. He put them in all different kinds of corners of the wall, and they started knocking it down, and they started serving side by side to see this mission fulfilled. That's where our story picks up. That's where our story picks up today. I came across, some of you are going through this in our life groups, in favor with a king. And um, there's a chapter that's this week that I sort of just want to read out of real quick. And I was like, is that kosher to do? Yeah, it is. And so it has to do with a gentleman by the name of Oz Guinness. Oz Guinness was a mentor to me, though I've never personally met him, through his writings and his works. Oz Guinness is a philosopher, a Christian apologist. Uh, he's very smart, astute, very unassuming kind of individual. And so he's famous for a lot of different works. He's also famous because he does come out of the Guinness Beer family, from my understanding. But um, Oz Guinness from England, he wrote a book I remember in graduate school that was given to me called The Gravedigger Files. And The Gravedigger Files, in there, he talks about what's happening in culture. And this was a number of years ago. Today, Oz, I think, is on part-time staff with Ravi Zacharias. 
and his ministry. But um, Oz Guinness wrote the Gravedigger Files. He talked about secularization, pluralization, privatization. Secularization is where um, uh, religious um, ideas and institutions have lost their social significance. Like, uh, that doesn't necessarily matter, that kind of thing. Pluralization is where there's a number of competing worldviews, but there's no one predominant worldview in a culture. And then privatization is where you can sort of separate what you believe in private and what you do in a public domain. Like, you know, hey, personally, I'm against abortion, but I vote for pro-abortion you know, kind of things or a politician, right? And so he's very descriptive with all this. And so Caleb Anderson, who we're springing off of for this series, uh, he writes this on page 200. He says, a number of years ago, I was invited to spend a long weekend with a dozen or so 20-something up-and-comers whose resumes were far more impressive than mine on the Chesapeake Bay. There were a few mentor types with us who passed on wisdom from their journeys. One of those was Oz Guinness. Oz is an author and social critic who has written or edited 30 books. He is a man of great wisdom and insight, yet he is incredibly humble and unassuming. But on this occasion, it wasn't Oz's insightful social commentaries that I recall a decade later. It was how he described one particular friendship. Oz talked about a friend who, was all, who also was in a position of prominence, I believe in Washington, D.C. Oz lives in England, but once or twice a year, the two would meet up in a pub somewhere in a bustling part of the world to connect and encourage each other. According to Oz, no doubt one of us would be wrestling with some struggle set back or discouraged about the trajectory of our work. However, refusing to give into despair, determined to never give up, we would always ask each other, I love this question, all right? Is the revolution still on? In other words, for Oz and his friend, this question was about getting their eyes back on the bigger story. Is God still on the throne? Is the resurrection still real? Is light still pushing back darkness? Is life still breaking through to death? Is the revolution still on? If the revolution is still on, then we still have a part to play. Don't get distracted. Don't get discouraged. Don't succumb to depression. Fight on. Don't be afraid. Remember the Lord and fight for your family. You like that? So once or twice a year, he gets together with his friend, and their, their question of accountability is, is the revolution still on? Is the revolution still on? Is Jesus still raised from the dead? Is he still forwarding his kingdom on earth? Is he still about transforming people's life, even amidst all the craziness and social chaos going on? Is the revolution still on? Better answer that question. If you're a Christ follower this morning, and, and I would resound, uh, answer with a resounding, yes, it's still on. It's what gets me out of bed every morning, even a little droggy or it's a rainy day or whatever, or things aren't going well in other parts of life. Friends, we are a part of the kingdom of God, and he is taking over and reestablishing his rule and reign in this earth. And you go, what? What news channel are you watching? Trust me, the news channels don't cover everything that God's doing. And there is a day when Jesus is coming back. And until then, we're called to forward his kingdom his mission on earth as it is in heaven is the revolution still on today what we look at with nehemiah is what happens when discouragement and even despair starts to set in in your life what do you do you bunker down for a while try to press through or do you come to a place 
and you say, I'm done. I'm done. That was a great idea. That was a great vision. But it ain't going to happen. Nehemiah 6. I'm going to look at Nehemiah 6 and then back to 4 a little bit today. When word came, came to Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gate, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the village villages on the plain of Ono. Now, you need to know that Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem weren't your just run-of-the-mill high school bullies. These guys were governors of some different lands around there. It would be like three senators coming to you and I from different parts of our nation and coming against us. And these guys were at him. They're at him here in chapter 6. They were at him back in chapter 4. And it says they asked for a meeting in one of the villages on the plains of Ono. Jerusalem is up on sort of a precipice area. The plains of Ono were one of the plains that are down. Now, I like the name because you can be guaranteed of this. When you're pressing forward in your mission, trying to accomplish something for God, you are going to be attacked by people. There's going to be criticism. There's going to be people that mock you. There's going to be people that don't believe in you, people that just sort of want to sow seeds of discouragement. And they're going to ask you to come to a place called Ono. And it's not a plane. It's Ono. Ono. What am I going to do? What am I going to do when the relationships start to break away? When the paycheck is no longer there, when discouragement sets in, when I have direct opposition, when something isn't coming through that I need to come through, oh no, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Nehemiah. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply, I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Isn't this interesting? <laughs> There's Nehemiah. He's orchestrating the project. The project's going very well at this particular point. The walls are up. They haven't got the gates and other things in. And the skeptics, those who were scheming to do harm, sent word to him, come on down to our level. I like the statement. I am carrying on a great project. I have a mission from God. And I cannot go down. I cannot go down to that level. I cannot stoop to wallow in that type of talk or discouragement. I cannot go down and um, give this away. I have to attend to this task. I've got to be busy doing this, which God's called me to do. And I will not. I will not. I will not. Oh, no. I will not. Go down. You been there before? Title today, Just Can't Stop. And that's the kind of spirit that Nehemiah had. Nehemiah rebuilt this wall in a matter of 50-some days. And he stayed at the task even when the discouragement was around him. Then the fifth time, Sinballad sent his aide to me with the same message. And in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written. I love this. This is, things don't change in human history. Really, they don't, because we're all human. It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. 
Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have even been appointed prophet, have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us meet together. They were scheming. They were scheming. I sent him this reply in verse 8. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. You see, this whole subject of fake news has been around quite a while. (laughs) They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands and I will not. I will not go down to Omaha. I've been there. I know you've been there too. And God wants to say to you, he is here to strengthen your hands, to stay at the task, the project that he's called you to, whether it's building a family, building a business, building a ministry, stepping out in a bold faith or something that other people maybe are skeptical about. Don't listen. You listen to God. You have a mission from him, and you stay true to that mission. And don't allow the voices to influence you. And sometimes, you know, it's not the voices of other people. Sometimes it's the voices in our own head. Oh, you can't do that. Oh, you're too old for that. Your time's come and gone. Why do you think you could do that? Oh, you're too young for that. You need to wait it out a little bit. Oh, you don't have the resources. If you did that, oh, my gosh, what would happen to your life and your family? All kinds of things that come into our minds, whether from others or from our own uh, skepticism and doubt. And God wants to say, I want to persevere and be with you and strengthen you in it. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, what I'm talking about here is a mission from God. I'm not talking about something you've had in the back of your mind, like, oh, this is just sort of be nice, fun to do. I've seen other people do it. I'm talking about hearing from God. That's why we spent the early part of this series saying, what is your heart broken about? And could it be an indicator? And what is your identity? Because when God starts to lay a burden on you, that burden will require suffering. And you need to know that. But pick a mission. Receive a mission from God, whether young or old, that's worth suffering for. Because you will suffer in this life, and you will have people who bring accusations. Knowing if I'm on a mission from God worth suffering for, here's... Four ideas or four questions to ask yourself if you think that's true or not of maybe what you're doing. The first is this. Am I committed to the cause even if I get no credit? In other words, if somebody else's name is elevated above mine and they get their credit for what we're doing, does it matter to me or not? If it doesn't matter to you, that's maybe a good sign that you are on a mission from God because you know it's not about you. It's about him. And what he's wanting to see happen. The second is this one. Does the job facilitate the dream? Let me unpack this just a little bit. If you are going to take on a mission from God, there's going to be financial sacrifice maybe in your life. If you're going to start spending time doing that, it's going to take you away from doing some other kinds of things. There's going to be a cost that's involved. But is the job what you're trying to find fulfillment in, or do you see the job as facilitating the greater dream? Paul was a tent maker, right? 
He had a job, but he is known today as the greatest missionary of all times. That was his cause, his mission, to take the gospel of Christ, the good news of Christ, to the regions that are unknown. Third, does my family believe in the vision, or are they becoming resentful? Now, you need to know this. The mission is always, we talked about it last week, about the people. It's not about the wall, the project. It's about the people that are being influenced behind it. And in that category of people, foremostly is your family. And if your family is an edge of resentment or there's neglect going on, then you need to step back and ask yourself, is this mission truly of God in what's going on? And fourth is this, will my pain lead to progress with others? Will the pain and the suffering that you're taking on lead to the progress with others? There's a story from uh, the Caleb Anderson guy with a book that he, uh, he is a pastor of Mariner's Church in Huntington Beach. Mariner's Church has four satellite campus, four campuses. And um, Caleb has a brother, a younger brother, by the name of Josh. And in high school, Caleb shares that Josh was this emerging star quarterback. So his junior year, he's working out, he's planning on a big season, and he gets to be able to be the starting back uh, quarterback for Claremont High School, which is here in SoCal, right? And um, so he was excited about that, but his brother Josh also had um, a belief that God wanted him to serve people. And so he had a free hour in his school schedule, and he chose to take that hour and go work in the special needs classroom of Claremont High School. Now, his coaches and other people was like, hey, you need to go lift weights for that free hour, work on your football issues. And he said, I, I'm going to go do this. And I said, all right. He got a little bit, you know, tweaked about a little bit and and, uh, and kidded and joked. Well, you go do that for it. You're really serious about the football kind of thing. And he served and he tried to build friendships in the special needs class uh, for that year of his junior year. And some days he didn't know if he was making much headway or not. Or they really care that I'm here. But he come to find out that, you know, he was and he was building these friendships. And he built a friendship in particular with a gal by the name of Adriana. And Adriana was a quadriplegic girl. And uh, it was very hard to understand Adriana, and but yet he would learn to understand her. And so he built this friendship, and he built uh, the friendship uh, not only with her, but with other special need kids. In fact, one of the football games, he got a bus to get everybody to go to the game from the class, and they sit at the end of the end zone, and, and he comes out, and he's all decked out in his garb, and he's going down and giving high fives to all the special needs game. I mean, it's one of the highlights of their year, probably, maybe kind of thing, excited about it. Adriana, he continued to build that relationship with her. In fact, he, um, she didn't have that great of a home life, so mom invited her to come to the house, and, and they would uh, prepare meals. He'd go get the big blue Suburban, put her wheelchair in that, take her to the house, and, and so the household sort of got to know her a little bit, that kind of thing. And so he had this incredible opportunity to serve his junior year. Well, guess what? He, he, he pushed back against the naysayers. He took on the opposition, if you will, the people that joked about him, the students, and some of the coaches ribbing him about things. And he says, no, God's called me to do this. Well, the next year, his senior year, there were five football players that were a part of that special needs class. He graduated. He goes to Wheaton College, which is a Christian liberal arts school west of Chicago. And he's their quarterback his freshman year. He's trying to make things, figure things out, what to do, that kind of thing, and pressing through. And during the course of the year, he has a phone call every now and then with Adriana. 
catching up. She tries to catch up with him. Dialogues forth, back and forth. Comes to be spring around uh, May time. Heading into May, he gets a call from Adriana, and Adriana asks him if he would take her to the prom. He gets on a plane. He flies back to Claremont. Caleb said he skips you know, out of college to come, and he drove the big blue Suburban out. They went and got got the suit. She got a dress, got the flowers, those kinds of things. And he escorted them to her senior prom. Josh didn't even know if she really knew much about the prom. And Caleb says he pulls up with them and lets them out, and Caleb begins to push Adriana into the auditorium. It's been done up as a ballroom, right? And he sees as the doors open. Hundreds of kids lined up, welcoming back the star quarterback from last year, but pushing Adriana into that prom. She didn't dance. He didn't dance. But there was an evening to be had, and there was a win scored that was bigger than any other. In fact, from my understanding today, if you go to Claremont High School, you will see football players pushing wheelchairs up and down and giving high fives and interacting with other special needs kids, all because his brother Josh persevered. And he says, I have a vision. I have a mission to see something come about. And he was blessing other people. Will my pain lead to the progress and the beauty of other people's lives? In the life of Adriana and the life of those special needs kids then and even to this day, it made a difference. Do you have a mission that's worth suffering for, being teased for, being given a hard time about? Press on, press forward with it, and make sure that God is in the middle of it all. If you're to drop back to Nehemiah 4, you find the same group of characters again. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah, the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building, even a fox climbing on it, would break down their wall of stones. Now, was that true? No, these were huge stones. A fox climbing on it. But... That's what happens when people ridicule you and come at you. They will make up things. They'll work angles. They'll start to sow doubt in your life. I've been there. Have you? Subtle statements, and they hang with you, and you begin to doubt that that's possible. Oh, you feeble Jews. You know, you're going to try to do this. You can't finish. Mocking, ridiculing. And sometimes, friends, it's not overt. Like I said, sometimes it can be subtle from people. Maybe people have been through hurt and pain themselves, and they say, well, this is what happened to me. I I doubt that you'll be able to make it through. Maybe it's those voices in your head, the voices in your head that, that bring that discouragement and that doubt. Verse 4, hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight. For they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. Now, what did he do here? Did he go at them? 
like, I'm just going to fight back at him. He prayed. You're thinking, what are you doing? What are you praying for? It's because Nehemiah knew that there was a big picture. There was more going on behind the scenes than what was apparent. And so he begins to pray rather than attack those people. Don't let those people get in your head. Don't let them camp there or set up residence. Just let it go. Let it roll off. Get the encouraging few around you that have support for the vision and move forward in it. Sometimes I, I, get, I cringe when I think about some people in their marriages, and I'm like, who are you getting counsel from? Well, the gals at work, they said, just ditching. Just let it go. Can't believe he did that to you. And I'm like, no, no. Let's hear from God. Let's get some godly counsel around us. Yes, it may be very desperate and dark, but God is able. And begin praying and leaning into his voice, not the voice of others. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of unseen world, against mighty powers in the dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Nehemiah knew there's a world behind the visible world. Do you? Do you think that maybe the opposition that's up against you, the discouragement is not of this realm, but is of the unseen realm? I had somebody the other day, was it Justin? You've been listening through the book of Job, right? I had a whole semester in the book of Job. That, that's a heavy book. He read through it. He's listening through it in the car, right? And um, Job never realized what was happening behind the scenes with all the discouragement. Satan has said he's not going to continue to follow God, right? Your fight's not against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities in the unseen world. So Nehemiah 4.8, they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. And if you go on and continue to read in chapter 4, you see that he also encourages the people to take positions and to be ready to fight, to be armed. Nehemiah prays to God, he posts the guard, and he positions the people. There's the spiritual dimension, and there's the practical dimension of what you need to do if you're in discouragement and up against opposition. Praise, but then he positions a guard to be on the lookout. And then he positions the people to be able to fight against the enemy if they come. And they didn't. They didn't. Because they saw the readiness of what was going to happen. And the wall went on through into completion. Galatians 6, 9 says this. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. So Maybe that's just a simple word for you today. Whatever you're going through. <laughs> Don't give up. The key there in that verse is at the proper time we'll reap the harvest. Not in your time, not in my time, not in Pacific Standard Time. It's in the proper time, as God sees it. You will reap a reward. So do not, do not give up. Reminds me in the passage of Romans, the Apostle Paul just boldly speaking about our presence that we have with Christ. He says this 
And we know that in all things, God works for the good to those who love the Lord, who are called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, whom can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give to us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he then that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present or the future or any powers, neither height nor depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ. Friends, Paul had tremendous opposition. It was he taking the gospel forward into unknown places, places that would ridicule him all over the place. He would talk about his sufferings, his persecutions. But inside of the apostle Paul, he had this disposition from the Holy Spirit where he knew that he knew that he was on a mission from God and it was worth suffering no matter what happened and that Christ was the one who was the victor. The revolution is still on in Paul's mind and it's still on today. And there is nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ. There's no trouble. There's no hardship. There's no persecution. Christ is with you. Stay the course. Put the marriage together. Build the family. Step out on that mission to establish a care to people that are neglected. Build that business that's God-honoring. Whatever it is, establish a class to help people with their financial issues in life. Whatever it is, you stay the course. Christ is with you, and there is no one that can take you down to the plane of oh no. Amen. I'm going to ask Joe to come. Joe, back in here yet? We're going to. Uh, close with a song. This song is a familiar hymn. It's a hymn. And I remember times in my childhood, in my young adult years in particular, that would break me. Because you can't sing the song unless you're willing to be where the song is taken. It's the hymn, I Surrender All. Because, friends, we can all get charged and we can say, let's take the mountain, let's stay the course. But God wants you to make sure you stay surrendered to him foremostly in all things. There's this verse 
in Acts 4.10. It says, Let me clearly state to all of you and to all people of Israel 